Well, good morning. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Joel chapter 1. Joel chapter 1, as we begin a study through the book of Joel, I think we'll be here, by my estimations, for four weeks. And then we will be going through the book of Obadiah in one week, and then we will be off to 1 Corinthians, even though I mean 1 Thessalonians, because you're like, oh, he's starting that over again. Well, I thought, I wasn't sure if I needed to go back and do it right, or, uh, or if I just have prepared sermons for the next week. So, all right, Joel chapter 1, as we begin our study in the book of Joel, and if we were going to we always talk about a phrase that we want to put or a word that we want to put, put with this book and we would just simply say Joel, we would talk, we would say it is the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. So uh, that theme is comes through in this book. We have a, a lot of information to go through today and, but I just hope that we will enjoy as we, as we partake from the Old Testament today. Joel chapter 1, listen to the inerrant word of God as it is read. The word, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. What is the gnawing lo- what the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake, drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For the nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number, its teeth, are the teeth of a lion, and it has fangs of a lioness. It has made my wine a waste, and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. Wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined, the land mourns, for the grain is ruined. The new wine dries up, fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up and the fig tree fails, the pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field dry up, indeed rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Has not food been cut off before your eyes, gladness and joy from the house of our God? The seeds shrivel under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the barns are torn down, for the grain is dried up. 
How the beasts moan, the herds of cattle wander aimlessly because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I cry. The fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and the flame has burnt up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you for the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. There ends the reading of God's word this morning. Join with me in in prayer before we go through this text this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for that it was given and that all of your word is profitable. And so I pray this morning that you would protect your word, that you would give me clarity of thought, and that as we go through this passage, we would once again be convinced not only of the truths of your word, but of the necessity for us to deal with sin. And so I pray that you will be in this time. May the Holy Spirit be the teacher, I pray in your name. Amen. We live under the new covenant, and so for us, we often tend to, in many ways, take forgiveness and grace for granted. And because of that, there's a tendency sometimes for us to take sin not very seriously. We tend to think that we can get away with it. After all, God is a God of grace. We often sin and we get away with it, and there's no consequences. Now, for some of us, we have lived lives that have, where sin has cost us, and there are times where we, are, we recognize that there are things in our lives that are, and the situations in our lives are a result of the sin that we have committed. But for most of us, that, that is not the case. For most of us, we simply carry on. And this morning, as we look at this text, we're going to really see the seriousness of sin and the need for repentance and the need to turn to God for forgiveness. And as we look at this example of of what is taking place with the Israelites and this word of Joel to the Israelites, we will see a nation that has fallen into sin, though it's unspecified. And because of that, God has brought judgment upon them. And now they are called to ultimately repent and turn back to God that they might receive his blessing. And to really, it says, do this because the day of the Lord is near. In other words, there is coming a time. The day of the Lord is a time that can be a time of judgment and a time of blessing. And he said, there's coming a future time of judgment and blessing. And ultimately, God will either bless those who are for him or he will put retribution on those who are against him. And all those who live in sin will ultimately be those who are under God's judgment and his wrath. And so Joel here wants to make sure that the Israelites understand the seriousness of this sin and that of sin and that they will turn to him. And so this morning, as we look at this text, we're simply going to see, first of all, we're going to see that Joel, the the source of Joel's word to them, we will see a call for them to contemplate what is taking place. We will see the completeness of the devastation and then a call for repentance from what is taking place. And though we are not Israel and though we are not under a covenant like Israel was with God in the Old Testament, 
we too must recognize the seriousness of sin. And we must recognize that God will judge sin. And the only way for us to escape both the devastation spiritually that is described here physically and the only way to ultimately protect ourselves from God from the day of the Lord to come is to be those who deal with sin and to live righteously before God. And so this morning, let us just walk through this text this morning with that in mind, that we need to be those who recognize the seriousness of sin and to recognize that it is only through repentance and our hope is in God alone. So Joel begins this book. He says, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Now, again, there's really, Joel means the Lord is God. Pethuel means open-heartedness towards God. And, and though we know the, the meaning of their names, their names are really not relevant for the rest of the book because <laughs> those themes are not pushed through the book. And so we know very little about Joel, except that he, we know whose son he is, and apparently the audience knew who he was. We know very little about the time that the book was written. There's been debate as to where it is, whether it's pre-exilic or post-exilic. Uh, we don't really know, and it's not particularly relevant in this book to the, to the understanding of the book. Now, if you were to press Pastor Tony to the mat and say, where do you, when do you think it was written? I think it was probably written during the reign of Josiah when he was still a child. He wasn't on the throne. Uh, but ultimately, uh, I, can't, I cannot tell you whether I am completely right or completely wrong on that. So take that for what it's worth. So it says the word of the Lord came to Joel. So the source of whatever we're going to hear now is coming from the Lord, which is the word Yahweh, the covenant name for Israel, the God of Israel, the covenant name that put him in relationship. There's intimacy and relationship as, as he now speaks to this Judean audience. And so as he comes, he says, I'm coming and this is the, the name of the Lord. This is the covenant God of Israel that is coming and who is speaking to you. And there are several things that go with that name. Not only does it indicate that they were in a covenant relationship with him, but the name was also a name that came to have the idea of God's judgment and salvation for his people. In other words, God acted for his people. He is known as the God that has come. He came in Exodus and he rescued his people out of Egypt. He is a God who was a God of salvation, a God who made his manifest works known to his people. In fact, when he says that the patriarchs didn't know his name, it doesn't mean that they weren't aware of his name. They had, they had known his name. They just had not seen the character of God demonstrated, the character of Yahweh now demonstrated like he did with Israel. And when he took Israel out, he was their salvation, and then he also put out retribution on those who were against him. And in this covenant relationship with Israel, he also said, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, 
There are curses that come with it. And so as, as he starts this, right away, there's going to be this idea in the mind of the audience that he is speaking about Yahweh, the God who not only who has salvation and the God who judges and punishes those who are against him. And the scripture in the Old Testament opens that up, that ultimately this will be against all God's enemies. He will have retribution and he will save his people who are faithful to him. And so as the Israelite mind would read this, they would immediately put that together and they would say, okay, this is the God, the covenant God of Israel, who, in whom there is salvation and who also judges those who are against him. So we see the source of his message and now we, now we see the call to contemplate this locust plague that we have read about here in our passage. He says, hear this, O Israel, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? So he says, hear, listen, pay attention. The idea here is to listen is not just to hear the sounds, but to listen with obedience, to listen with comprehension obeying and perceiving the message. And he says, listen, which is, emphasizes the need to make a conscious, purp purposeful decision on the matter. In other words, I want you to hear, I want you to understand, I want you to react, I want you to have a mental understanding of what's taking place. And he says, he first addresses the elders. He's not just talking about old people here. He's talking about those who are the leaders of Israel, the civic leaders, those who were set up in charge. And if you, if you really want them to be old, we would understand that you didn't become an elder until you were older. So it takes in both the old people and those who are in charge, as it should be. <laughs> okay. Um, and so he says, oh, elders, the, the le civic leaders of, 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 of Israel and all the inhabitants of the land, everyone hear this, pay attention to this. I want you to, I want you to, to understand it. I want you to perceive it. I want you to obey it. And I want you to make a mental, a purposeful decision on it. And then he asks this question, has anything like this happened in your days or the days of your fathers? And he's taught, again, speaking of this locust plague that has devastated the land. And he says, has anything like this ever happened? And it's a rhetorical question because he's expecting you, them to say what? No, because we've looked back through all of our history and we haven't witnessed it. Nobody has seen anything like this. Nothing like this has ever taken place in our land before. Now they had seen some locusts in Egypt, but nothing like this had taken place. And so he says, I want you to recall, has anything happened in your land like this? He says, and the answer is no. And so he says, tell your sons about it. Let your sons tell their sons and their sons and the next generation. In other words, this is to be proclaimed. This is to be proclaimed. I want you to tell them about the devastation that has come, about this this locust plague that has come and absolutely tore the land apart. Now remember this, this is God speaking. 
This is God speaking. And he says, I want you to contemplate what is taking place here. I want you to understand, I want you to think, why is this happening? Why is this happening? In other words, what is taking place here? And the idea is simply this. God had promised that if they were obedient, he would bless them. If they were disobedient, there was curses. And one of those curses was that there would be what locusts would eat their land. And so remember, as he starts, he says, Yahweh, the God of salvation and the God of retribution, the one who will punish those who are in disobedience. Remember, you're under a covenant, and I want you to consider this. What's taking place here? What's taking place here? There's locusts in the land. And it's not by accident. It's not by accident. God has brought it about. And then he continues on as it were. In fact, I, I just wanted to quote this. Deuteronomy 28:38. Moses had warned of the consequences of covenantal disobedience. And one of the things was, you shall bring much seed to the field, but you will gather li little for the locust will what? Consume it, consume it. And so they were now suffering because of their disobedience. And so they were, had a responsibility to tell their children. But the idea here isn't that they're just supposed to tell the details of the plague. But the realization that it was Yahweh who was bringing this about. He was the one who brought the plague. And so they were to tell much about the mighty acts of God and declare his work. And one of them was what judgment, and God had brought judgment upon them. Then he continues, lest they forget the uniqueness of the plague, Joel reminds them in verse four. He says, what the knowing lo locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten, and what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten, and what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. And so he reminds them of what the devastation that has taken place. Now the scholars debate here because there are 10 different words in Hebrew for locust. I think that's enough. And so these, he uses four words here, three of them that are never ever used in scripture in another place. And so scholars say, well, we think this is four stages of development of the, of the locusts. You know, that they come as, they come first, as a little worm and then they, they develop in the cocoon and then they, they come, they grow out of that and eventually to adulthood. Some have said this is four different kinds of locusts. In other words, these are four different plagues. The reality is we can't be firm on either one of those. It may be just a poetical device, but we, we do know the great news is we do know what Joel's point is. There is complete devastation of all the crops and everything that is green in the land. It is completely gone. In fact, there was one plague in Africa that went on for over 16 years of locusts and it just continued to go across eating and eating and eating and consuming. 
And he says, this is what's happened in the land of Canaan. They have just, it has completely eaten everything. Everything is destroyed. And so he says, I want you to contemplate this destruction, this judgment. Understand in your mind as you contemplate that this is from the hand of God. That this destruction that you see is because of disobedience to God's covenant with them. You know, for some of us, we're not under the old covenant and we're not Israel, but guess what? Sometimes we act like Israel. And we think that we can sin. We think that we can do whatever we want and there's no no consequences. And yet, we do know this, that God will punish those who are his. He will not punish, but he will discipline those who are his. And that he may not, he may not make your whole life fall apart, but he, but he might. But he will also bring leanness to your soul because you cling to your sin. And you will be as devastated spiritually as the land is here. Because you refuse to see the seriousness of your sin. And so we are called much like Israel, to contemplate. Contemplate our sin. Contemplate the fact that when we sin, we are separated from God and his blessing. Well, the prophet now rehearses in vivid fashion the devastation that has come upon them. And where he did it from the locust view, he will now do it from the, uh, the perspective of the recipients of the plague. And we could call this the completeness of the de- de- devastation. He now describes to us in, in vivid terms the impact of this locust plague that has come upon the land. And he does it by referring to three societal groups that are mostly most affected by the locust plague, by those who, by the locusts as they come. He speaks to the drunkards, the priests, and the farmers. Three groups that are affected. And he begins this first part with the drunkards. And he says, awake, awake. A reference here uh, to drunkards and weep and wail, all you wine drinkers. And he calls them to awake, to wake as it were, as he's waking a drunk from a drunken stupor. Drunks can be difficult to rouse, but here Joel is rousing them to the bad news that their supply of alcohol will be cut off. On the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. He says, weep. The idea there is to lament and bemoan. The idea is is generally with tears and to wail has the idea of, of crying out loud with your voice and beating your breasts. And he says, do this. Instead of the gaiety of drunkenness and your wanton lifestyle, he says, now sober up, as it were. Be sober and recognize the problem here. The wine that you so much like to drink, this sweet wine, which is probably the wine that has the most sugar content. 
Isaiah tells us that it is a wine that is fermented. Isaiah 49, 26. I will feed your oppressors with their own flesh and they will become drunk on the wine of their own blood as sweet wine. And so the idea, this is an alcoholic beverage. And he says, this is, it's no longer going to come because the vine has been decimated and it's cut off from your mouth. Cut off is, is a, a term that is often used for the making of a covenant. And the idea here is that this has been cut off by God. He is the one who has cut off the supply. He's the one who sent the swarm. Wine was often a, a sign of, 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 of God's blessing and richness. It was often a sign of those who, who were in God's favor. And here he says, the wine has been cut off from you. More than just the fact that you have no more wine, recognize that God's blessing has been lifted from you. Weep and wail, not just because you've lost the wine, but because you have lost divine blessing from God. He says in verse 6, For the nation has invaded my land. For a nation has invi invite, invaded my land. Mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion and the fangs of a lioness. And he says, listen, he now compares the locust to a nation. To a nation that is coming, invaded in my land. And the idea here is it's coming like an organized army into the land, mighty and without number. Mighty here is not so much the idea of, of, of strength in, as brute strength, but rather they are mighty because they are without number. They are, they are without number. In fact, they say that, that if when a locust plague comes, there's over 40 million of them within uh, locust within one square kilometer. So you can imagine how many they are coming and you can see them coming, making the sky dark, sounding like raindrop until they come. And it's in Joel, I think, 2.5 tells us that they are like with the noise of a chariots when they come. And he says, they are coming like, an invade, like a nation invading my land, mighty and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion and its fangs the fangs of a lioness. In other words, they, they rip and tear all of the vegetation like a lion rips flesh. Their teeth was, was sort of like a saw and, the, and their teeth are kind of like eye teeth of a lion as they go back and forth. And he says, just like uh, the teeth of a lion and the fangs of a lioness, the lioness does most of the hunting. Hunter-gatherers, I guess. And so he says, so too are the locusts. They've come in and they have made destruction on the land. And it says in verse 7, it has made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. These, these locusts have come into the land and, and now notice this. He says, this is what? My vine, my fig tree. 
God is now claiming that this is his. This is his land. And this has taken place to his vines, to his trees in his land. And so he says, these locusts have come and they have laid waste. They have completely destroyed. He says, and my fig tree splinters. The idea here is with splinters is damage from breaking off twigs and branches. And they, you know, when a locust comes and it starts to eat, it will eat everything that's green and then it just starts to eat everything that it can. And then eventually it will even eat the new growth of the branch of a tree. It will eat that new green growth and it will eat that when, when there's nothing left. It has stripped bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. Literally, they will eat all the bark off of a tree until nothing is left but the white inside of the tree. It's like a graveyard of of trees, completely white. And so they are stripping away and destroying it all. And so instead of symbols of prosperity and happiness and peace, the vine and the fig tree become visual reminders of divine judgment as God has taken the things that he has promised to them when they are, when they are in obedience and now they are destroyed in disobedience. And so he says to them, weep and wail. Weep and wail. This is, this is the devastation of the land. It has completely destroyed the fig trees and the vine. You will no longer be able to have wine. You will no longer be able to drink. You no longer have divine blessing. And guess what? Guess what wine was used for? In the sacrifices. And now there would be no more wine and the, no, no more ability to worship because the wine, there would be no more wine to worship with. Well, now he turns to the priests, the second ones who would be affected by, by this for two reasons. The priests, number one, were those who did sacrifices and number two, guess where they got their food from? From the sacrificial system. And so he speaks to the priests in verse 8, a second group that is affected by this, the complete destruction. Wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priest mourns and the ministers of the, the, ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined, the land mourns and the grain is ruined and the new wine dries up, fresh oils fail. And so he says to them, priests and then ministers which is really all those who served within the temple the priests tended to be those ones who actually worked with the altar and sacrificial system the ministers were those who who kept up the rest of the temple and all the things that did to support that and he says to them weep wail like a virgin girded for sackcloth with sackcloth in other words cry out loud Beat your chest, put on sackcloth, put on that that thing that demonstrates mourning for the bridegroom of her youth. In other words, just like a newly married woman who has lost her husband, 
He says, you are to grieve over what is taking place in that same way. And he says, grieve. Why do you grieve? Because the sacrifices have been cut off. He says, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off. In other words, you, you need to recognize that you will no longer be able to sacrifice, do the sacrifices before God because there is nothing to sacrifice. These sacrifices have been cut off. They are no longer available to you. The grain offering is used to signify a gift or a tribute given uh, to acknowledge subservience. And since the grain offering designated the submission of the offerer's whole life to God, they, the inability to offer it would be viewed as a lack of submission to Yahweh by his people. And so he says, weep and wail because you no longer have the ability to put yourself in submission to Yahweh according to the sacrifices you are supposed to do. And therefore, you are in covenant disobedience and there's no way to be restored. That ability now to go and give sacrifice to God has been taken away. The drink offering, which was given really with every sacrifice except for the sin offering, it was given in the morning and the night the offerings were given. And again, a sign of thanksgiving, and you couldn't even do that. It was supposed to be a sweet aroma in God's, in God's nostrils, pleasing to him, and that could no longer be done. Those, the, grain, the, the grain offering and the drink offering were cut off. And the idea, again, is that it was cut off because God is the one who brought the locust, and God is the one who kept them away from offering sacrifices to him. And he says, cut off from the house of the Lord. They can no longer go to the temple. They can no longer sacrifice. And therefore the priests mourn and the ministers of the Lord. Now we know who he's addressing. The field is ruined. The land mourns. The grain is ruined. The new wine dries up. The fresh oil fails. He says the, the fields are ruined. They can no longer produce. The land is now personified as mourning because it can no longer produce what is necessary for the sacrifice. It can no longer give what God has intended it to give. And as a result, the grain is ruined. It's all been eaten. The new wine dries up. There's, not, there's going to be no more produced. And in fact, this will be something that will go on for several years. Because it's devastated the vines and, the, and it will dry up. There will be none left. Fresh oil fails. It's got the idea of, of, working, of going to exhaustion. In other words, the fresh oil will simply be, be all used up. There will be no more oil used or had. And so he says to the priests, wail, cry. Recognize the fact, the devastation that is brought, that there is no longer the ability to worship Yahweh because of the damage that has been done by this locust.
And then he turns to a third group as he continues to show us the devastation. And now it's towards the farmers. He says, be ashamed, O farmers, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and for the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up and the fig tree fails, the pomegranate, the palm, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. So he turns to the farmers, and again here, farmers and vine dressers are not referring here to the owners of the land, but those who are hired to work on the land. Vine dressers maybe is a small subsection of farm farmhands who works with the vines and all and with fruit, not just the vines, but with fruit. And he says, all those who are working the fields, those who are hired to bring in the crops. He says, be ashamed. Now, we think of that as an internal shame, but here he says, be shamed because something external has happened to you. God has brought this about, and now there is no crop, and you are publicly shamed. Be ashamed. Wail, again, the the idea of, of cry out in pain and distress. Why do they do that? For the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the fields is destroyed. And again, wheat, wheat was, a, was a product that was um, considered of value. Solomon used it to trade. It was a commodity that was worth a lot. It grew in the better soil. And it was a sign of God's blessing. And the barley was, grew in less rich soil. It was often the food of the poor. And he says, weep and wail, be ashamed because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The locusts have eaten everything and there's nothing to harvest. The vine dries up and the fig fails, the pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field dried up. In other words, everything has been eaten. Everything is gone. There's nothing left at all. They've completely destroyed everything that's edible. And now in a very real sense, there's a need to weep and wail because now there's a real danger of what? Famine, right? We started with the luxurious things of life, the wine. We started with the things that are necessary for life. We moved to a relationship with Yahweh. And now here in a very real and immediate danger, maybe even in a greater danger is the fact that they will starve to death because there's no food. And he says, even, 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 the, even the things that we like to eat, the things that bring us joy, the pomegranate, the palm, the apple tree, they're all dried up. They're completely gone. And he says, indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. Now, remember, for the Jews, rejoicing came all the time at harvest, right? They had the wave offering. They had the, 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 the first fruits. There was a time of rejoicing and celebration, God's goodness, as he blessed them with crops. But now that celebration is gone. The joy is gone because there's no joy to come because there's no harvest at all and there's no ability to have a wave offering before God. There's no ability to worship him. There's no joy. There's no hope. And so Joel says, look at the devastation that has come. Look what has taken place. 
They have completely wiped out the crops. But guess what, Israel? The crops isn't the biggest problem. The biggest problem is you can't be right with Yahweh. You are not under his blessing. You cannot sacrifice to him. And your joy has been taken away and you cannot rejoice in him. So Joel then turns to a call to repentance. A call to repentance. And in many ways, though there can be no day of rejoicing and there'll be no celebration because of the crops, there is still a celebration to be had. There is still a gathering to be had. And as he comes here, he he calls for repentance. And we will see in this section, first of all, those who are called to repent. Verses 14 and 15. It says, consecrate a fast and proclaim a solemn assembly, you elders. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the house of the Lord, your God. And so he says here, listen, there's something, there is, though there will be no celebration and no gathering and there will be no offering, there is something that you need to do. You need to call a fast. You need to bring yourself to proclaim a solemn assembly. Solemn assemblies were often brought, called in Israel. They were, there was a sound of two trumpets that were, brought, that were beaten, steel. They were called to call the people together. But instead of rejoicing, there would be a public fasting, a time that was separated from work, a time where they were now to call out to God. He says, gather the elders and the inhabitants of the land. Start with the leaders, priests. Bring in the leaders and then what? Bring all the people, call them together. Bring them to the house of the Lord. Bring them to the tent of the Lord. Bring them together to call out to God. It's to be a time of prayer a time of fasting, bring them together. No work was permitted on these days. They were to cry out. It signifies a loud prayer, one born out of fear and danger, impelled by the gravity of the moment. They are to cry out to him. Alas, and here he gives the reason. Before he's been talking about the dangers that have come from the locust and the fact that they can't worship, but now an underlying reason that they must call out to God. He says, alas, a cry of danger. Look out for the day, for the day, for the day the Lord is near and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. And he says, in essence, lift up your eyes. In other words, you are suffering now, as it were, in a day of the Lord that he has brought suffering upon you. But in the future, there is coming another day. The day of the Lord is, is near. In other words, it's eminent. The idea there is eminency. It's not near in time as much as it means it's eminent. It could come at any time. God could come in judgment 
on those who are opposed to him and blessing on those who are for him. There have been days of the Lord through history and there is one that is still coming yet future. And he says in that day it will come as destruction from the Almighty. God will shatter as it were the things that are left. He will shatter those who are against him. He will come. The Almighty here has the idea of omnipotent. The omnipotent God will come and he will shake and shatter those who are against him. This is why you must repent. This is why there is necessary for you to call out to God so that you might be restored to him and that you might not be one of those who in this day of the Lord be under his wrath. Joel now reflects on the locust plague. Has not the food been cut off before your eyes? Gladness and joy from the house of the Lord? In other words, you no longer have food. You no longer have the things that bring you joy. And now that has, is now reflected in the fact that there's no gladness and joy in the house of the Lord. There's no ability to go in and to worship him and to, and to come into his house with gladness. There's a relationship between offering to the Lord and gladness and joy in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 12, 6 says... There you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes and contribution of your hand, your votive offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd. There also you and your husbands shall eat before the Lord and your God and rejoice in all the undertaking in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Then it shall come about that the place of the Lord and your God will choose for him for his name to dwell. There shall Bring all that I commanded you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions of your hand and all your choice votive offerings, which will be a vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before your, the Lord your God, you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants and the Levite who is within the gate, your gates, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Again, that we have the feasts of the Israelites, and so there is joy in sacrifice to the Lord. And he says that is gone because there's no ability to sacrifice. And then he continues on, the seeds shrivel under the clods. Again, it's hard to know what this phrase means. They've, they've talked here about uh, shriveled under the clods. It seems that the idea is here is every time you take your shovel or your hoe and you look at a, you pull out a seed underneath the dirt, it hasn't germinated because there's no moisture, there's no life in it. And because of that, the storehouses are desolate and the borns are torn down. In other words, the storehouse is where you keep your grain and the barns is an equivalent to that. In other words, your barns are, they're, they're desolate. There's nothing in them. And the barns are torn down. They've fallen in disrepair. Because why repair a barn that doesn't have anything in it? And then he says, for the grain is dried up. And again, maybe equivalent to shriveled under the clods. Where the, the seed has so dried out that it is unable to germinate and give life.
And so he's again calling here for repentance as he gives us again the reason why to repent. And then in verse 19, we see the response to the call. The response to the call to repent. He says, to you, O Lord, I cry, for the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and the flame has burnt up all the trees of the field. Now Joel starts here and he becomes the first one. He has called the nation to repent. He's called them to come to the Lord, to consecrate themselves in prayer and to cry out for help. And now Joel is setting the example, as it were, to you, O Lord, I cry. I will start, start with me, Lord. Start, I will start with me. I will do an intercessory prayer here, but I will also be the first one to cry out to you for help. I'm not waiting for others, but I will be the one who will, will reach out to you. To you, O Lord, I cry. In other words, at the end of all of this, there's only one place to go. There's only one place where help can come. There's only one place where restoration can come. There's only one place that can turn this around, and that is to come to the Lord himself. And again, Joel recognizes that Yahweh is the only one that can help him. He is the only one who has made a covenant with Abraham. He is the one who made the Mosaic covenant. He is the God who has promised blessings to those who are obedient. And he recognizes that only this is the place that he must go. This is where he must find forgiveness. And so he cries out to the Lord. To you, O Lord, I cry. This is the only place that I can go. Then he reiterates to an omniscient God, again, what has taken place. For the fires devoured the pastures of the wilderness. This could be a literal fire. More than likely, it's speaking of, of the drought that has come because drought comes with locusts. And the flame has burnt up all the trees of the field probably speaking there again of of the drought. It has completely killed all of the plants. And then he says, even the beasts of the field pant for you. He says, and again here, this beast of the field is probably referring to the wild beasts. And he says, the, even the wild beasts pant for you. In other words, they don't know you, they're, they're not, they don't have a religious side, but even they know, they pant for the water that can only come from God. Yahweh is the provider, and he says, even the animals people look and recognize their need. As David says, as a deer pants for the water, so my soul, Brooke, so my soul pants for you. And he's saying, listen, even the animals are smart enough to recognize in the way that they can, that God is the provider. They pant for the water that only God can provide. And he says, you need to do the same. You need to pant for the water, the spiritual water that only God can provide. He says, for the water brooks are dried up and the fires devoured the pastures of the wilderness. The water brooks, there was brooks that ran through, the, through Israel. Some of them were fed by snow and rain. 
some of them by springs, and he says, they're all dried up. There's no water in the land, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. The drought has made it so that all of the fields where the animals used to grain, there is nothing left. And so Joel ends this this call here, and he says to us, just like Israel, who thought that they could get away with disobedience to God, ultimately need to recognize that the only place that God deals with sin and that he deals with it seriously. And the same God who in for covenant disobedience of Israel sent this plague is the same God who will chastise those and discipline those who are his. And he's also the same God who will judge the enemies of himself with eternal fire. And so he calls on us to recognize that seriousness of sin, contemplate its seriousness, see its devastation, look at your own life to the sin, what sin has done in your life and recognize that the only way out of that sin is to cry out to God, to repent, ask him to grant you repentance and to turn to him because he, it is only in him is, is salvation, only in him is deliverance. And only in him will we ultimately find blessings in our life. And so this morning we are called to learn from the nation of Israel that God deals with sin. And that there is coming a day where where he will come again and he will reward those who are his and he will punish those who are in disobedience to him. And the question is, Do we want to be restored? Do we want to be in his blessing? Or do we want to ultimately be disciplined or even face his wrath? And so this morning I call you to deal with the sin in your life. Take it seriously, God does. Look what he did to the nation of Israel because of disobedience. It is the same God now And he takes sins just as seriously. And so I call you, consecrate a fast. Gather the inhabitants of the house of the Lord and cry out to the Lord. If you do that, he will forgive you. He will restore you. And he will bring the spiritual blessings into your life. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we again thank you for the examples that have gone before. And we thank you for this warning that we have here from the book of Joel. A warning, and yet there is hope. that when we are in disobedience and when we are cut off from you, that if we come in repentance and we cry out to you, that you will answer us. And so I pray that you would help each one of us
to be those who deal with the sin in our lives and who come regularly in repentance and that we would cry to you recognizing that it is only you who can forgive our sin and restore our relationship. So I pray that we would heed this warning this morning, I pray in your name. Amen.